2: You know, I've heard complaints from folks in the Global South that when they engage with the Global North on, on climate issues, you know, they're talked to about the transition to clean energy, you know, the investments that the Global North wants to make are in, in that, that arena. And, and these countries are saying that's not what, really what we need. Our energy footprint is, is small compared to yours. What we really need is investment and adaptation. And I think you're seeing more and more demands from the Global South for that. I mean, ultimately, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? We have to be able to do both. But I, I personally think that, that adaptation has gotten a bit of the short end of the stick thus far and, and, and needs to get more attention. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, right? Things you can do to cut emissions can also help communities potentially adapt to and, and be able to manage, manage climate risks. They're not, they're not necessarily totally separate.
1: I'm Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 14th, 2023. It's been another brutal summer, with seemingly constant natural disasters precipitated by climate change. The United States and other countries have rightfully begun thinking of climate change as a security issue. But extreme weather is not the only challenge we must contend with. There's also the problem of climate change's victims many of whom are forced to leave their homes. I sat down with Aaron Sikorsky, Director of the Center for Climate and Security at the Council on Strategic Risks, to talk about this phenomenon, which is often referred to as climate migration. We discussed the scope of the climate migration crisis, its security implications, and how we can try to mitigate the harm. It's the Lawfare podcast, September 14th, 2023. Climate Migration, and National Security. So Erin, I wanted to talk with you today about this concept of climate migration. So it may be a new term to some of our listeners. Can you just explain
2: what climate migration means? Sure. It's it's a great question, Natalie. And frankly, there's there's a lot of debate and discussion about it. But at its core, what it is, is that climate hazards, right, whether acute hazards like Hurricanes or uh, other storms, or wildfires, or more long-term hazards such as you know desertification or or drought are driving people away from their homes to move primarily within within their own countries for now, right? Um, from rural areas to cities. Some of that migration might be temporary. Again, in the case of a hurricane or a wildfire, you may come back to your community, but some of it may be permanent, right? And, and so we're seeing uh, more and more around the globe that new displacements are being driven by climate hazards. In 2020, 75% of new displacements were caused by some kind of climate impact. And I will say it's rarely climate alone, right, that drives these things. It's often climate in conjunction with, with other issues. It's climate hazards affecting economic productivity for a community, for example, maybe it's a climate hazard plus increased violence in a community forcing someone to move. So it's it's complicated and and complex, but as the planet warms, as more climate hazards occur as we've seen this summer, right, across the world, more and more people are going to be on the move.
1: Okay, so there's a lot to dig into there. I wanted to just sort of break it apart. So the first phenomenon that I think is perhaps a little familiar to people, but I want to hear some more about is this notion that people from rural areas are moving more and more frequently to urban areas as a result of different types of climate change, as you said, some more sudden onset, some longer term. But what are the implications of that sort of urbanization?
2: Right. So the implications, you know, I, I give you a classic answer. It depends, right? I mean, for, throughout most of human history, the way countries became wealthy was through urbanization, right? It was an economic development uh, strategy for countries to build cities and you have greater economic activity, you make more money, you raise the, the, the living standards of the population. So it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. I think that the challenge now with climate-driven migration from rural to urban areas is the the scale, right? And the scope is just so many more people are moving and moving to places in many cases in, in the global South where urban areas are already overwhelmed, right? And so they're moving into um, communities that aren't well-structured, right? They don't have good infrastructure, And they're overcrowded, often in shanty towns and and those communities that creates potential health risks in the city. It creates potential, you know, food and and water insecurity risks. And oftentimes what you see, too, is these communities moving because of climate hazards are are moving into urban areas and then still at high risk of additional climate hazards in those, those cities as well. So it just raises, in some cases, the risks of instability to governments, to communities to have this this scale of of movement. And then, of course, it also leaves the rural areas, right? As more and more people leave, it leaves them even more vulnerable, the people who can't move, who are staying behind. And we don't see a lot of places around the world where cities or governments are, are well prepared for this kind of movement either. So it's the kind of thing that if you, you did some planning ahead of time and you made made some policy investments and choices, you could manage it a bit better. But we're not seeing that happen a lot of places, unfortunately.
1: So what are some of those policies or investments that could have been made or should be made to help mitigate these
2: problems? Sure. So in terms of what, what can be done policy-wise, it's it's a few different things. When we're looking at countries uh, where a lot of this migration is happening, especially in in the global south, right, where you have folks moving from rural to urban areas. One thing that can be done is just to to make a plan, right, to prepare for those those migrants coming in, and and think about uh, what types of infrastructure need to be built, where they could be housed. And this is something that Bangladesh actually has been exploring and, and doing some interesting work on where they're building new communities to receive climate migrants and, and thinking about how how to manage that internally within the country the other thing that can be done though is more investment in local adaptation and resilience for folks so they might not have to move right um, if one of the main reasons that it, you know in a country that that climate change is is driving migration may be, Agricultural issues, right? Because of drought, because of desertification, right? Less water availability. Thinking about what kind of investments can be made in, in agricultural adaptation, right? The development of drought resistant seeds, right? Getting those into the hands of, of local farmers, helping them, uh, measure water availability, giving them tools, right? On the ground so, so they can stay. Um, that's not going to, to solve all of it, frankly, because people are going to have to move, right? You can't adapt your way out of all of these climate hazards, but certainly that can, that can manage some of it. And I think there's a role when we talk about this happening within these countries, there's a role for countries like the United States and, and other Global North countries as they think about their development investments, as they think about their, you know, climate finance investments, that they're taking into account these internal migration dynamics and and making the right kind of investments and and support to countries so they're better prepared to manage these these population shifts. And I think this is important for U.S. national security because uh, it's in our interest, in the United States' interest, to help maintain stability in these countries, to help people stay in the countries that, that they're from, and, and have economic development and access in those countries right like that's that's should be uh, part of our goal in, in making these investments.
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense although I wonder it does seem particularly in environments where resources are scarce, whether it's the country itself trying to make investments or even with assistance humanitarian aid or other assistance from wealthier countries that, those two goals that you mentioned may be in some tension to invest in local adaptation and resilience on the one hand versus preparing things like housing and new communities on the other hand, do you find that there are instances where those two goals are in competition with each other?
2: Yeah, I mean you're right it is it and this is why I think it's so important that we have the right you know climate risk analytic tools, basically, to understand the dynamics in in terms of what's happening in specific countries, and not just kind of have blanket policies, um, a one size fits all, because it's going to depend. Like I said, some places, resilience and adaptation uh, measures may not make sense, right? Things are too far gone, or literally communities are becoming unlivable because temperatures are going to be too high that you're not going to be able to work out side during the bulk of the day, right? I mean, so you need to do, you need to do the analysis first to see what is the right fit for certain places. And it's not going to be the same everywhere. I think, you know, in terms of limited resources, too, the other thing to think about is I wouldn't consider these just investments in climate migration, necessarily, they're broader investments in development, they're broader investments in good governance, right? in in places, but you're taking climate migration into account as you're putting forward those policies. And the other thing I think will be really important is as, you know, when we think about foreign aid, when we think about development, when we think about climate adaptation, finance, right, that the programs that are being developed are being developed with a longer term time horizon in mind so that we're not planning to you know, weather patterns and and rainy seasons from five or 10 years ago, but that we're looking forward five or 10 years, so that we don't make investments in adaptation and resilience, for example, in one community, that's only going to work for the next couple of years. But then because of the trajectory we're on with with temperature rise, right, and, and heat waves and whatnot, it's just not going to be sustainable. So I think that's that's going to be another important part of the planning to make sure that we're, we're using our dollars smartly
1: and who is in the best position to be making these assessments that are you know country by country or sometimes even region by region
2: yeah that's that's a great question i mean i think some of it is is we need we need new approaches the world needs new approaches to to manage this i mean every uh, most countries have created what they call climate adaptation plans right and they've working with the un on, on how to how to implement those, I think it probably needs to be, obviously it needs to be a partnership between national governments. It needs to be a partnership with the scientific community to understand the climate dynamics, but then it also is a partnership with the, you know sociopolitical institutions in, in those countries as well, because the science only gets you so far. You know, here in the US, USAID, is a key player. Development agencies in Europe and elsewhere are also really important. And just that local buy-in is is important as well. So it's not just national governments, but local communities and, and what they want and what they're seeing on the ground. I mean, they're often the best measure of what's actually happening <laughs> in, in these communities, even if they might not use the words climate change. They know that the agricultural season has changed, right? They know that that planting doesn't work the way it once did. So all of that, ideally, they're kind of cross-sectoral and and cross-level, if you will, right, in in engagements. And I I can't say that I think this is a, you know, it's talked about a lot on paper, like this is the kind of approach and programming we need. I don't know that we have that many strong examples to point to where you're really getting that kind of cross-collaboration yet, but I think it's certainly you know again when you look at what happened this summer with hazards the imperative to adapt and be able to manage in a warmer world i think is becoming more and more clear and that mitigation or cutting emissions alone isn't isn't going to to do it in terms of these problems i mean we're going to we're already here we're already having these hazards and so i think there's there's more of a push to get adaptation and investments right but but there's still a long way to go
1: Yeah. And I want to come back to all of the different actors and stakeholders that you just listed off. But another trade-off, it seems to me, that I just want to ask about quickly is this distinction that you made between mitigation and cutting emissions on the one hand and making adaptations on the other hand. That's another area where it seems that incentives and resource competition could put those things in tension with each other. Are are you seeing that there's a difficulty in prioritizing or allocating resources across those two goals?
2: Yeah, I mean, for a long time, you know, in in the climate community, there was a real concern about too much focus on adaptation will take away from the need to to cut emissions, right? That that countries or actors will see it as a get out of jail free card, right? Like, oh, we'll just invest in adaptation and we'll manage it. And yeah, we can keep emitting and, and, and not worry about it. Um, I think there's a recognition now, though, that that's just not where we're at. Given the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere, the amount of warming we've seen, like we can't ignore the conversation around adaptation. It's just, it's, it's too urgent. Even if you were able to magically cut all emissions tomorrow, you know, we're still going to warm for the next 10 to 20 years based on the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere. It's just, you know, it's where we are. And so I think there's been more of a push now for adaptation investments. Um, I think there's still quite a bit of a mismatch in, in terms of, of funding and, and focus. You know, I've heard complaints from folks in the Global South that when they engage with the Global North on, on climate issues, you know, they're talked to about the transition to clean energy, you know, the investments that the Global North wants to make are in, in that that arena. And, and these countries are saying that's not what, really what we need. Our energy footprint is is small compared to yours. What we really need is investment and adaptation. And I think you're seeing more and more demands from the Global South for that. I think at the next uh, COP meeting here in the UAE, that's going to be a big topic of conversation i mean ultimately we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time right we have to be able to do both but i i personally think that that adaptation has gotten a bit of the short end of the stick thus far and 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 needs to get more attention and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive right things you can do to cut emissions can also help communities potentially adapt to and and be able to manage manage climate risks they're not they're not necessarily totally separate but um it's it's an important piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah. Can you give any examples of some of those initiatives that would be helpful both for adaptation and for mitigation?
2: Sure. I mean, you know, not being reliant on imported fossil fuels, right? Being uh, resilient, able to make your own energy through wind or through solar provides you resilience in the face of shocks to the energy supply chain elsewhere that could come from climate hazards, right? Um, so, so that can be helpful. I mean, there are, there are huge environmental benefits to moving away from some fossil fuels in terms of pollution and air quality in local communities, which again makes you more resilient to a changing climate. So, so those kinds of investments can help, um, investments in different forms of agriculture as well, potentially, right? That aren't as, uh, energy intensive can also be more resilient and, and to, to climate hazards. So there's there's a lot to be done there. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
0: and enter code lawfare twenty at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare twenty, code lawfare twenty.
1: So to circle back to all of the different stakeholders in, involved here um, and all of those who sort of need to play a part, you listed off a whole bunch and they are often investments that we don't often think of in conjunction with one another so you mentioned the UN and sort of bilateral uh, foreign aid, perhaps regional organizations as well international organizations but also you know the scientific community and local communities, And you mentioned, in addition to them, just having partnerships between um, sort of governmental entities, international organizations, and actors that seem a little bit more in the private sector. So how does one convene or get all of these different actors who don't often speak to each other to coordinate and come up with some sort of coherent strategies?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe this gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about this, this group that I'm a part of called the Climate Migration Council, right? Which I think is a good example of the kind of convening of, you know, government, business, national security, academic and advocacy folks from different walks of life, um, to come together to think about solutions to, to the, the climate migration challenge. I think, you know, one of the biggest gaps I see Right now is the, the disconnect between the climate scientific community and then the, the policy practitioners, right, who are trying to make changes on the ground in, in communities or address issues around, say, climate migration. Um, I think the two groups speak different languages, right? Um, and, and the thought of how do you get that Climate science data into the hands of local communities in a usable way, so they can make smart plans and they can make good decisions about how to prepare for these shocks. Um, bridging that gap is a key policy imperative that I think is still a big a big challenge. I think groups like the Climate Migration Council are thinking about how you you might do that. Um, you know, there are a lot of mayors involved in the in the Climate Migration Council and in a lot of these conversations because it is cities right that that are absorbing in many cases a lot of these migrants and so mayors have an interest in in figuring out creative approaches to this but but it's a it's it's certainly a challenge and i think again in a us government context for a long time right the 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 unit of analysis and our unit of engagement is the state right us state department engages with its you know national level counterparts in other countries the same with USAID to a large extent. They're based in the embassies. But to manage these these problems, you need to be able to engage with local level leaders, right? Um, whether it's provincial or state level, depending on, on other countries with non-government leaders, you got to get out of the capitals. And so building different kind of universes of connections, if you will, like thinking about the different people who need to be around the table, I think is is a key question for not only for climate migration but for a whole bunch of different challenges right that we that we face in the the 21st century um you know the CIA director bill burns has called these quote problems without passports um and i think when you're dealing with these kind of problems without passports if you will like climate like global health pandemics you need different universes of people to to work on them so I don't know that I gave you a good answer, frankly, about how to do that, but I think just even thinking about it differently um, and about who needs to be in the room is a good first step.
1: No, I think it's a really, it's actually a very good illustration. Um, I'm I'm glad you referenced uh, the CIA director's comments because I was going to bring those up as well. It seems to me that the distinction you're drawing is sort of having the national level and international level conversations on the one hand, which is sort of, as you said, how we typically think about these things, versus having really truly on the ground actors like the mayors who are thinking to themselves, you know, I have a city budget, how am I going to deal with it? And I have this neighborhood and these people and these constituents, and yet I have all these people, you know, showing up
2: mm-hmm. with
1: their bags, needing somewhere to go and having normal human needs you know, for food and an emergent sense, but longer term for jobs. And you have scientists who are working on this stuff. So, you know, one of the things that that CIA director Burns had also talked about was the complication of having national level conversations also in the context of sort of great power competition and strategic competition. Mm -hmm. Um, So it seems to me that some of these other actors that you mentioned are in a position of being able to have different types of conversations without quite as much baggage as at the mm. national level.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that's right. And I think you know when you, when you maybe step away from that that geopolitical viewpoint, right, and and the the competition viewpoint, you can have more constructive conversations. I think the the challenge is, you know, you have to, you have to somehow activate funding and interest at the national and international levels, right? So that the bilateral donors, the multilateral donors are willing to put money into this adaptation or, or resilience investment to help manage these migration challenges, but then to make sure that money is spent in a way (laughs) that will, will have a benefit, right. That will actually succeed. You need that, that local buy-in. And so, you know, what are the right venues for these conversations? How do you make sure that, that, the local folks are, are listened to, but also that, you know, you can learn from one another. I mean, it's just it's it's a real challenge. I, on, the, on the geopolitical front, too, though, I mean, one thing I will say, and again, getting back to why I think it's so important for the United States to focus on this is, you know, when the U.S. looks around the world and looks at our allies and partners and what they're most concerned about in many cases, right, climate issues top the list. And they want help from the United States in in managing these challenges. And so if we can step up to the plate and help them deal with this, you know, especially I'm thinking in the Indo-Pacific with the Pacific Islands, where obviously migration um, because of sea level rise is, is, is a key question, as well as in, you know, the Mekong and elsewhere, um, they want help. And if we can provide that help, that not only strengthens you know, our position with them, but it also builds their resilience. So if we need them for something, if we want to call on them for something, that they're better able to, to help us. So it's, it's, again, it's not tackling these climate issues, helping f- think about how we manage climate migration is a benefit in, in the competition as well. It's not, it's not separate.
1: Yeah. And I think it's really important to articulate that as you did, because it makes this all much less abstract and theoretical right it's much more immediate and you can sort of see the payoff in a more direct sense. I think this leads sort of well to another aspect of climate migration that we've talked about a little bit less, which is more of the Mm cross-border type of migration, where, of course, you, you sort of get kicked up necessarily to the national and international level. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk a little bit about those challenges and how they are both similar and different from
2: those internal uh, migration challenges that we've talked about? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the climate migration conversation sometimes in in popular press or, or whatnot can be kind of fraught. Right. Because it's raised these huge numbers of migrants are, are referenced without a distinction between internal migration and external. Um, when we know that most of the migration will at, at least initially be internal due due to climate. So that's important to know. But but some will have to leave their countries. Right. And leave their regions and, and look to go other places. And in this case, right, the, the migrants themselves are not a security risk, <laughs> but but how countries react to them could create security challenges. And I worry a lot about you know at places like Europe um, and the previous you know waves of migration they've had in, in recent decades and how that helped drive some you know reactionary nationalist policies in certain countries. Certainly we've seen the same thing here in, in the United States and and these people who are moving because of climate change get caught up in, in these domestic political fights. And the focus on the fact that everyone globally deserves the opportunity to migrate with agency and dignity, right? Gets lost in, in these political conversations. So, and this is again, we're getting ahead of the challenge, right? We know that, that, certainly because of climate as we look ahead the next 20 to 30 years more people will need to move between states almost certainly so let's think about what types of migration systems we need to build today to be ready for that 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 movement so that instead of becoming you know political footballs these people are able to to have their dignity and have the protection of the international system and and are treated in a way that um, keeps them secure and and manages the challenge, as opposed to just waiting until it's a problem and then it's really, you know, as we've seen, very challenging to deal with in the heat of the moment, um, if you will. So thinking about how to build flexible migration systems, you know, investing in urban centers, part of the way you manage, you know, the international migration piece is by making the right investments in countries where the migrants are coming from so fewer of them feel the need to move again so they're 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 connected issues
1: right so can we talk a little bit about those types of preparations in a concrete sense so you mentioned investment in urban centers and investing of course in the the countries where people are having to flee from but it seems to me there are also sort of governance type preparations that would need to happen like you know even down to the level of figuring out in an immigration system how you're going to deal with a large influx of of people in a more humane and sustainable way are there other types of preparations that you can talk to us about
2: yeah i mean i think uh, you you hit on a couple of them i think you know building the international conversations right international discussions about the rules of the road for migration and refugees, making sure that, you know, Customs and Border Patrol officers are familiar with climate as a driver and and what that looks like and, and when we might expect larger movements of groups. I mean, I think that kind of analysis is important. And the Biden administration has done some of this. I mean, as part of their suite of work that they've looked at related to uh, climate change and climate security. Migration has been a piece of that. I will say, I think that's been the place where they've struggled the most because of the domestic politics here in the U S around migration. But I think it's, it's a, it's a planning function, right at the federal government level. It's a, it's a uh, negotiating function at the international level to think about how we, you know, respectfully manage this, this load of people, and then it's like a, it's a infrastructure challenge as well. Um, I think in all of those areas, uh, we need to to think more about that and and how we manage it. You know, and I'm not I, I'm am I'm a climate security expert. I'm not a, a an immigration law expert, but but from my understanding, you know, we're well behind in terms of matching our institutions and our legal discussions about this from from where the actual challenges, right? And and there, just, there needs to be a lot more investment of time and energy in, in thinking this through. Again, because it's a, you know, what, what was uh, Donald Rumsfeld saying? It's not an unknown unknown. This is a known known, <laughs> right? We know that these climate hazards are going to happen. We know that people will need to be on the move. We know it'll be hard for their own countries to absorb all of them. So we, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily... A surprise. So let's let's invest the the time and energy now to to get ahead of it.
1: Yeah, I think those are all such great points. I, I guess just to end, and maybe this is an unanswerable challenge, but I'm wondering, you know, what do you think we need to do to convey a sense of urgency here and to to get people to really pay attention in a sense that will allow us to do these big things like doing this involved, complicated planning that you're talking about, making, you know, significant financial investments in adaptation and mitigation strategies and figuring out, you know, how do you convene all of these actors and get them to work collaboratively together? And how do we encourage a sense of urgency to get all of that done?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the question with, with a lot of these climate issues, right? I mean, again, You know, going back to to the Climate Migration Council, I think efforts like this one are a good step in that direction because you're bringing together, I think, people who whose voices can matter on these issues. Right? There are faith leaders involved, and there are former cabinet secretaries, but also working with local leaders like mayors. So they're kind of they're they're demonstrating the kind of connections and leadership that we want to see governments make on these topics. So I think that helps. I mean, I think another thing that helps is. Articulating that, yeah, we're asking for a big investment of time and money, but it's a lot less time and money than if we don't plan ahead, right? We're going to have to, it's a problem we're going to have to deal with at some point, and it becomes a lot harder and a lot more expensive to deal with it if we wait until it's on our doorstep, right? So putting the time and effort in today gives us more, more flexibility, more choice going forward. We can, we can shape things in a direction that, that is more, more constructive, you know, and I think pointing to examples in, in recent years where, you know, migration has either overwhelmed and and created challenges within communities due to climate. I mean, the Syria civil war is one that's pointed to a lot that the drought in Syria played a role uh, ahead of the civil war where farmers and rural communities, you know, were really struggling and many of them migrated to cities in Syria, were not, you know, accepted and accommodated in a way that allowed them to thrive, which led to protests in those cities. You know, climate wasn't the only driver there, but it was a big one. And certainly, I think everyone would agree that the Syrian civil war has been a huge threat to, the, to global stability. Since it began, it's created a lot of additional problems. And so getting ahead of risks like that um, is, makes good sense right? And being able to, to think about managing that type of migration in the future. Another example I look at in recent years was uh, Belarus, uh, when they enticed uh, migrants from Iraq, from Kurdistan in particular, to come to Belarus with the promise of getting them into the EU. And then they sent uh, all of these migrants to the border with the EU to cre- create a, a crisis there for the EU to deal with. I mean, they weaponized that migration. Again, those migrants weren't necessarily driven by by climate change, per se. Um, but that's an example of of the weaponization and 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 figuring out how we're going to manage that ahead of time, getting ahead of that, investing today, really makes a lot of a, a lot of sense. And the types, as I said earlier in our discussion, the types of investments that need to be made to manage climate migration risks. Have co-benefits to a lot of other things that we care about, right? Other stability issues, other, you know, competition with China issues. So there's, we get a lot of bang for our buck, if you will, in, in addressing these issues early on. I don't know if those arguments <laughs> will, will carry the day, but I think they're the ones we need to make as, as we, as we push forward on this.
1: All right. I think that's a great place to leave it. Aaron Sikorsky, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Natalie.
1: The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org/support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security Chatter. Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.